Thank you all for joining us this evening for the annual Libertarianism versus Conservatism intern debate. For those who don't know me, I am Neil Saul, and I am the Student Programs Coordinator here at the Cato Institute. And I'm honored to introduce tonight tonight's event as the Heritage interns go head to head with the Cato interns to debate, is libertarianism or conservatism the superior political philosophy? Which political philosophy provides better answers to today's most important political questions? Of course, each of us have always had much to agree upon. Limited governments, free markets, and individual liberty are all pillars of the political philosophy that we both value and uphold, which have often led us to the same policy preferences and conclusions. Yet, what each of us envision in a free society without governmental and regulatory intrusion often does look quite different. Policy preferences surrounding foreign policy, immigration, drug legalization, sex work, emerging technologies, marriage and family, just to name a few, create cleavages that emerge from differences between our political philosophies. And as we've seen in today's political climate, seldom are these differences laid out through constructive civil discourse. In recent days, the protection of free speech has been under threat by those who claim the harms of certain kinds of speech outweigh its protection, that there's more sensible approach to the regulation of this kind of expression. Tribalism has sown skepticism and doubt into the very institutions that have brought absolute power under the rule of law, that have enshrined our inalienable human rights for the preservation of freedom. Which brings us here tonight on this stage as an opportunity for the exposure and articulation of ideas, values, disagreement, discourse, and debate. These interns have worked tirelessly this summer to parse out these nuanced policies differences through fun, logical, and rational debate. But before we begin, I'd like to mention a few housekeeping items. After the conclusion of this, of this debate, please join us outside in the auditorium in the Winter Garden, as well as on the second floor for a reception. Also, join the conversation throughout the debate by using the hashtag LVC debate, as you see on screen. We'll be drawing your questions during the Q&A portion from this feed um, for, for the debate portion. And furthermore, if you're on Snapchat, please check out our special Snapchat filter. If you send snaps to at Cato Institute, one word, they may be featured on social media. One important thing to keep in mind, especially when posting on social media, is that the opinions you'll be hearing tonight are those of our debaters and not the Cato Institute nor the Heritage Foundation. We would also appreciate your participation in our post-debate survey. You will receive this by email, and it gives you a chance to express who you think prevailed, as well as your opinion on a number of the issues that, that will be at hand and raised this evening. In the spirit of debates, another debate this time on whether capitalism or socialism has better benefited women, will be held here at Cato on September 16th at 6.30 p.m., and I would definitely encourage you all to attend or to watch online. Lastly, I'd like to express my thanks for our incredible conference staff for putting this event together, Elena Richardson and Colleen Harmon of the Heritage Foundation for their hard work, coordination, and collaboration. Matthew Feeney and Will Duffield for their invaluable assistance with debate preparation on the Cato Institute side. Christian Townsend in the front row, who agreed to serve as an alternate, 
and also provided extensible research um, and preparatory work as well. And lastly, a big thank you to Charles C.W. Cook, who's agreed to moderate tonight's debate. Charles C.W. Cook is the editor of National Review Online, a co-host of the Mad Dogs and Englishmen podcast, and the author of the Con uh, Conservatarian Manifesto. Charles is a graduate of the University of Oxford, at which he studied uh, modern history and politics. His work is focused on Anglo-American history, British liberty, free speech, Second Amendment, and the American exceptionalism. Charles is a frequent guest on HBO's Real Time with Bill Mayer and has broadcast for, for BBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and Fox Business. He immigrated to the US in 2011 and became an American citizen in 2018. He lives in Florida with his wife, their two sons, and their dog, a black lab. Please help me welcome Charles C.W. Cook. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you to Cato uh, and to Heritage for having me here and asking me to moderate this debate. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be involved in an argument about political ideas that doesn't ultimately come down to the question of whether the participants like David French or not. Um, I think I keep being invited back to do this because, um, well, other than Boris Johnson uh, is busy now. Um, <laughs> because I wrote a book on this topic um, called The Conservatarian Manifesto, in which I attempted to tease out the differences between conservatism uh, and libertarianism and to offer a way forward that fuses them where possible. Um, I was not, I suspect, invited back for my predictive abilities, given that one thing I wrote in that book was that America's next president might well be a quiet, retiring, humble, modest, non-invasive sort of guy who would remove the celebrity cult from our national politics and uh, <laughs> reduce the executive branch to the more limited role the founders had imagined. And then we elected Donald Trump, whom my colleague Kevin Williamson has described as a man with a sensibility halfway between Caligula and Liberace. <laughs> so as you'll imagine, my, uh, my wife doesn't allow me to, to place bets over about $5 anymore. But this does remain an important debate, um, especially at this moment. Uh, because we are obsessed in America with our two political parties and, and with the presidency, our political culture has a tendency to flatten all non-left ideologies into just the right. Cato, for example, is often described as conservative when it is no such thing. Um, heritage is presumed to be on board with every libertarian innovation when it is not. Anyone who doesn't want to vote for a Democrat is put into the same camp. Uh, a good example of this was the way in which, despite having very different jurisprudential approaches and personal political views, both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh were assumed to be indistinguishable during their respective hearings. And that tendency during the last Supreme Court term has led to great shock among some legal commentators when they noticed how much they diverged. Which is to say, we're not here this evening to ask how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but rather to ask more foundational questions, such as whether angels actually exist, whether if they do, they should be dancing on pins in the first place, 
whether their dancing on pins is good or bad for society, whether pins make us safer or we need more robust pin control, <laughs> whether the injuries sustained as a result of dancing on pins should be paid for by the pin dancers or by everyone else, and so on and so forth. This is not going to be a, a pin-free zone. So before we start, um, a couple of house rules. Please don't clap or boo during the debate. You can cheer and boo and throw your clothes at, at the end. And please make sure your cell phones don't ring. Um, and if they do ring, please don't answer them. Um, I've equipped all of the debaters tonight with tasers, and they'll know what to do if they're interrupted. The resolution tonight is, is libertarianism or conservatism the superior political philosophy? And we will start off with an opening statement from the conservative side, followed by an opening statement from the libertarian side, followed by rebuttals from each. Thank you all for coming. As you know, tonight we're hosted in Hayek Auditorium, named for economist Friedrich Hayek. To paraphrase his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, if man is to do more good than harm in his efforts to improve the social order, then he won't shape the results as the craftsman shapes his handiwork, but rather cultivate growth by providing the appropriate environment, like the gardener does for his plants. Hike's gardener has two choices. One, he can abandon his plants to subsist alone, dehydrate, shrivel up, and die. Or two, the gardener can water his plants, place them in good sunlight, and give them nutrient-rich soil so that they can bloom into magnificent flowers. The point of Hayek's garden is this. When the government sets the right conditions, the political community flourishes. That is not to say that the gardener will micromanage or engineer his plants according to a landscape design, but he can create the environment where they produce fruit. Conservatives and libertarians have enjoyed a mutually beneficial alliance. Together, we have rallied support for the free market and defeated communism. But in the tradition of the founders, conservatives recognize that unfettered liberty must never come at the expense of our society and our humanity. At the heart of today's debate is a central question. What kind of country do we want to live in and our descendants to inherit? Conservatism is a political philosophy that is designed to secure and perpetuate the blessings of liberty to the next generations by creating an atmosphere of morals, virtue, and law, faith, family, and responsibility. Unlike the axiomatic no-size-fits-all ideology called libertarianism, conservatism is a balancing pendulum with order on one end and liberty on the other. But libertarianism ignores the tension between order and liberty. The end result is excessive liberty and almost no order. In the name of live and let live, Libertarianism removes the social scaffolding around our society and the moral compass from our nation. And we see what happens when libertarians try to implement their ideals, always and everywhere that libertarianism causes societal decay. The libertarian said, legalize drugs. Entire regions of this country suffered under the opioid epidemic. The libertarian said, the right to abortion is a liberty as fundamental as property. Abortion became available on demand, and life and liberty was robbed from 60 million innocent unborn. 
The libertarians said, open the borders. The American taxpayer foot the bill for illegal immigration, either by forfeiting his job or his money to a larger welfare state. The libertarians said, marriage doesn't matter. Children got trapped in a vicious cycle of poverty and fatherless broken homes. Libertarianism is a utopian ide ideology that wants to build an impossible society. But the ideal world that libertarians want is not worth striving for. It's pretty much the farthest stretch from anything our founding fathers envisioned. Tonight, we'll set the record straight on the founders' vision for America. Looking back to Hayek's garden, the Americans do not want a broken wasteland of atomized individuals. We do not want weeds and briars to tear up our inherited plot. What we want is a thriving garden. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to come to Cato or watch online. I also want to extend a special thank you to our moderator tonight, Charles Cook, as well as to the Heritage interns for coming to the lion's den. As we weigh the relative merits of these two philosophies, we must consider an essential question. What is the purpose of government? While even volumes of text may not provide a fully comprehensive answer, the Declaration of Independence provides the best concise answer. Governments are instituted among men to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That right there is the libertarian vision for government. Simply put, libertarianism does a better job than conservatism at securing these most vital and precious of rights. Libertarians, unlike our conservative and progressive friends, recognizes that each adult has the right and responsibility to make decisions about how best to go about their life so long as those decisions do not infringe on the rights of another. Libertarianism resists that most base and human desire to impose one's beliefs on another through force. And that through force is essential to understand. We do not reject the fundamental importance of virtue, but believe that liberty is the best means of achieving such virtue. We recognize and cherish the vital role of civil society in any republic that Tocqueville so clearly identified in democracy in America. Yet the imposition of moral values by force of law is not only unethical, but actually crowds out the most essential roles of civil society. If we abdicate all responsibility to some conservative in Washington who thinks that they know how to order liberty, or some progressive who believes that they can transform society at the push of a button, all will be lost. A conservative who believes that the government can centrally manufacture a virtuous society falls victim to the same fatal conceit of a Marxist who centrally plans the economy. Virtue imposed by force is hardly virtue at all. Rather, virtue must be inculcated by vital community institutions. True liberty, when civil society is allowed to flourish, sustains virtue. In thinking about good governance, we hold a lot in common with our conservative friends. We believe in the rule of law and a vibrant judiciary that ensures contracts and property rights, so fundamental to any free society, are upheld. We recognize the importance of a criminal justice system that ensures that those who infringe on the fundamental rights of others face adequate discipline. We believe in a military that provides for the national defense. But we have a different conception of the limits of government than our conservative friends. Accordingly, I do have one key request for the audience tonight. 
Be wary of what George Orwell would call political language throughout this debate. Make sure to consider what the true ethical implications are when conservatives argue for certain interventions to uphold the social order. Smart drug policy means locking people in cages for choosing to put an intoxicant other than alcohol in their body. Likewise, protect the institution of marriage really means prevent those with a different sexual orientation than I from raising a child. Protect our liberty all too often means propping up a despotic regime like that of Saudi Arabia. Let us at least be honest about what certain conservative principles truly entail when assessing their merits. Libertarianism stems from a deep intellectual humility that we may not have it all figured out when we enact government policy. Rather than unilaterally decide on some social policy, libertarians place their faith in what Adam Smith called natural liberty. The natural liberty that emerges when fundamental rights are protected is how best to ensure that our society prospers. That, not government coercion, is how we preserve life and liberty and give people the best chance at securing happiness for themselves and their posterity. Thank you. Now we'll hear two-minute rebuttals, first from the conservative side. Our opponents talked a lot about the imposition of moral values, claiming that we conservatives fall victim to the fatal conceit of collectivism and as it follows authoritarianism but we would contend that it's actually libertarianism that backfires and ultimately invites the slippery slope government intervention that we all want to avoid. The problem is the individual choices that libertarians hold so near and dear sometimes produce large-scale unintended consequences that can rot civil society and leave ordinary people stuck picking up the pieces. Drugs haven't just stolen freedom from individuals. They've debilitated entire regions of this country from rural Appalachia all the way to the, West Belt, the, the Rust Belt. So when the social fabric starts unraveling, who but the government is called to stop it? That's the problem. It's the state that will get involved to cure the societal ills that libertarianism created, because libertarianism atomizes individuals to ultimately seek meaning in the state. But we must ask ourselves, is it really authoritarian to protect our national sovereignty and our citizens by securing the border? Is it really unjustified to deter foreign adversaries and aggression abroad so that we don't face invasion or extortion tomorrow? Is it really a violation of civil liberties to get people off of welfare and out of poverty by promoting marriage? Is it really tyrannical to want to get drug addicts off the street and parents off of drugs so that children aren't driven into the foster care system? The deceptive simplicity of libertarianism is that they don't often see the difference between banning the Big Gulp and banning black tar heroin. The problem is that if we fail to care for our civil society, and if we take individual freedom to its axiomatic extreme and balk at the chance to save our country, the only freedom libertarians preserve is the freedom to decline and fall. I'd like to remind you all that no matter how pretty the language from the conservative side is, fear-mongering isn't an argument. And this is a debate, and we're here to make arguments. So throughout, I think you really need to keep in mind what's an argument and what's something that sounds really great but isn't supported by facts. Libertarianism at its core is supported by facts. If you look at the data that we're going to give you throughout this speech, for example, in regard to the opioid epidemic, you'll see 
that actually by limiting the government's restriction on drugs, you do see fewer drugs, you do see more people not doing drugs. That's hard data. The other important thing that you need to remember is that in none of that did the conservatives tell you why the government needs to be doing all of these different policy decisions. Do you know what's a really effective way of not being addicted to drugs? Going to NA, going to Narcotics Anonymous, going to your local church, being involved with your families and communities to see what they can do for you. At its core, libertarianism is about the belief that freedom is something that is important. By no means is it unlimited. That would be a bad policy choice that, once again, is not supported by the data. But at its core, when we look at institutions, we believe that a society can have pluralistic values. We believe that religious freedom applies and extends to Jews, Muslims, and Mormons just as much as it does Christians. And at its core, when conservatives talk about family values, they talk about one type of family. And this is why you should prefer libertarianism as a political philosophy, because we believe that you should be wary of the considerations that the government makes for you. We don't have a lot of say of what happens in Washington. We don't have a lot of say of what happens in our government. We do have a say for what happens in our personal lives. And libertarianism is the only political philosophy between the two of us that believes that you have the ability and that you have the right to make choices for your own life, for your own family, and for your own communities. And that is why you should prefer libertarianism to conservatism. more specific topics. Uh, each side will speak for four minutes on that topic, and then there'll be one minute for each for rebuttals. Uh, the first topic, and the libertarians will start this one, does government have a responsibility to restrict citizens from consuming drugs known to cause addiction and physical harm? Conservatives say that drugs can do harm. To change things up, we'll concede that point. Now what? The question at hand is whether the government has a responsibility to restrict drugs. And to that, we respond no. First, let's address a historical argument. Do you know what the most dangerous drug is? On June 25th, the Global Commission on Drug Policy looked at several dimensions in the context of both harm to users and harm to others. In nearly every category, alcohol, a, a drug deemed by the government to be appropriate for people to consume, was deemed the most harmful. And the United States tried to ban alcohol before in 1920. Prohibition didn't work, and here are the effects that it brought. A 24% increase in crime over the course of one year in 30 major U.S. cities. A 45% increase in drug addiction that spawned the creation of Mexico's oldest drug cartel. A burdened legal system. And a 50% increase in deaths from alcohol from 1920 to 1921. And a 66% increase in deaths from alcohol from 1921 to 1926. And in the decade prior to prohibition, these deaths had been steadily decreasing. Next, let's look at today. 14% of adults smoke cigarettes. In 2017, one in seven U.S. adults used marijuana. An estimated 73% of the adult population drinks alcohol. These users are people, and locking them up for wanting an escape is wrong. If you wouldn't lock up your buddy for having a beer during happy hour, then why would you ask your government to do it for you? And there are different ways that we consume intoxicants. Downing a bottle of Granite State vodka is different from having a single glass of Aberlue neat. 
Banning substances does not work. It never has, it never will. And when substances are banned, the narrative surrounding drugs begins to ignore the human aspects of drug addictions. Because banning drug does not, drugs does not address the root cause of drug addiction. In studies done on rats, testing the appetite of rats for heroin, given the choice between drugs or playing with their fluffy friends, rats consistently chose social interaction. And studies on humans have come to the same conclusion. When people are engaged with good communities, they are less likely to fall prey to drug addiction. And we've seen this before. During the Vietnam War, soldiers used heroin, literal heroin. When they came home and were no longer surrounded by war and communists, they simply stopped doing drugs. If people are isolated, like in the prisons where we currently throw drug users, then they are more likely to become addicts and experience the negative side effects of using drugs as an escape. Drugs are about human nature. Thus, our final argument is a moral one. If drugs are bad, shouldn't you want people to refuse to do them without anyone telling them to? Don't you want someone to have the moral character to know that drugs are bad and refuse to do them? It's not against the law to cheat on your significant other, but that doesn't mean you should do it. It's probably still a bad thing to do. In the world where drugs are legal, communities are strong and resilient in the face of drug use. If someone finds themselves at the bottom of a bottle, friends, families, and non-government institutions can help them. Many people in this auditorium know someone who struggles with addiction. Do you really think that throwing them in jail would be the right call? It should be noted that even decades of drug prohibition later, we still cannot manage to keep drugs out of our prisons. At its core, this argument is about one thing in particular. When a well-meaning person makes a mistake, the answer is not to make them a criminal. The answer is to let things like family values and community ethics show them the way forward, because families and communities are better than a detached, unfeeling government. You cannot ban human nature. Governments are incapable of addressing the root causes of drug use. The state can only put you in a cage, and we've seen how that works out. And thus, the government should not ban drugs. Thank you. The same question for the conservative side. Does government have a responsibility to restrict citizens from consuming drugs known to cause addiction and physical harm? Because of the societal damage that drug consumption causes, the government has a clear responsibility to restrict them. More people died from drug overdoses in 2017 than all the US military casualties in Vietnam and Iraq wars combined. But it seems libertarians only care about the death toll when it involves the military. Libertarians say drugs are a victimless crime. Well, J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, certainly felt like a victim. At 12 years old, Vance watched his mother deteriorate from drug addiction in Ohio, one of the pill mills of the Rust Belt. Drugs were the reason he grew up in a chaotic and dysfunctional home, and the reason why he lived with his grandparents for much of his childhood. Drugs threw his family and town into a downward spiral of intergenerational poverty. And we can look to the documentary Seattle is Dying and to find some more victims. Half-naked homeless people, life drained from their faces, watering the streets, chasing drugs. Currently, two million people are addicted to opioids. On average, 130 Americans die every day from opioid overdose. Drugs inflict real harm, not just on individuals, but on families, entire neighborhoods, and cities. And to say otherwise is ignorant of reality. This is not the society the next generation deserves. Drugs like cocaine, meth, and heroin haven't liberated people, they've enslaved them. How is an individual free if his sense of reality is completely hijacked? How can he continue to act as a free agent if his cognitive faculties are under attack by these substances? 
But don't take it from me. Take it from libertarian scholar Walter Block of the Mises Institute. He wrote, drugs are soul destroyers. When enslaved by addictive drugs, all too often the very intention of freedom becomes atrophied. Welcome to the libertarian's brave new world where human dignity is reduced to nothing. Drugs also hurt a third party, children. After all, 70% of abused and neglected children live with addicted parents, and they had no say in that. Children from drug-infested homes are far more likely to struggle in school, suffer from mental health issues, commit suicide, or develop drug addictions themselves. Can libertarians really say that legalization will not exacerbate the situation? Of course not. Legalization won't fix America's drug problem. It will normalize it. The rules of supply and demand tell us that legalization will increase availability and cheapen prices, therefore lead to ever-escalating drug use. And as drug consumption proliferates, so will hospitalizations and traffic fatalities. The government is a social signaler, whether we like it or not, and people will follow the signals if it legalizes and destigmatizes drugs. Our opponents talked about the failure of the drug war, mass incarceration, policing costs, and the black market, and how all of this points to full-fledged legalization. Sure, the war on drugs hasn't been 100% successful, but the war on murder hasn't been 100% successful either. There's never perfect compliance. So what, do we quit and let a national purge happen because enforcement is difficult? Are we not even going to try to end the drug epidemic? The question our opponents need to answer is, will legalization make these communities better or worse? It's clear, under libertarian watch, America will waste away. I asked the libertarians, how many teenagers need to die from black tar heroin before the government should get involved? 10,000, 100,000, a million? How many towns need to rot from drug addiction? This is starting to sound less like liberty and more like a slow societal suicide. Thank you, now we have a Rebuttal from the libertarians. Well, I would first like to answer that question. Legalization will make these communities better. How do I know this? Well, our conservative friends correctly point out that drugs can harm people. You know what invariably harms people? The war on drugs that we've been waging for the last almost century. And they talk about the toll of the opioid crisis. And I'm not sure they're taking it fully seriously. Well, we, we can look at the example of Portugal. Portugal in 2001 faced a heroin crisis where 1% of the population was addicted to opioids. What did they do? They counterintuitively decriminalized all narcotics. What happened? Death rates plummeted. If the United States could reach death rates uh, analogous to that of Portugal, we would save one life every 10 minutes. Think about what that could do for our communities. Rather than locking drug addicts in cages like our conservative friends propose, we should give them treatment, just like we give alcoholics treatment. We, drug legalization will clearly make these communities better. Thank you, and a one-minute rebuttal from the conservatives. The libertarians can talk at length about the failure of the drug war, but they haven't proven that legalization will make these communities better or worse. And they talked about alcohol earlier and the prohibition of that. But what they didn't mention is that there is a self-regulating, self-moderating culture in America around alcohol. After work, co-workers will head to the bar to grab a couple of drinks. Will they head to the cocaine vending machine? I don't think so. Unlike the big gulp, drugs are inherently addictive substances, and the government is just social signaler, as I already mentioned. And drug abuse spans across, across entire regions of this country. So when drug addiction takes over an entire community, it's not a lifestyle choice anymore. It's a disease. 
Portland, Seattle, San Francisco are some examples of where libertarian policies like this have led. They've surrendered to drugs and they've been crippled by it. How can they say they've improved? Thank you. Our next topic is immigration. The conservatives will go first. The question is, undocumented migrants do not pose a threat to the United States. So it's kind of sad that we have to debate this issue. Border security is a fundamental exercise of national sovereignty. Any country has a right to decide who and what enters it. Therefore, legal immigration is a front to the dignity of the country and its citizens. Now, this is not to say that conservatives oppose immigration, far from it. We recognize that we are a country of immigrants. That said, we further understand that an intrinsic component of any sovereign country is the ability to control its borders. Now, the prompt states, undocumented migrants do not pose a threat to the United States, so our opponent's burden of proof is clear. They must demonstrate that illegal immigration poses no threat to the country, while we must prove in some capacity that it does, and the evidence is clearly on our side. Illegal immigration presents a physical threat to the United States. Every year, ICE apprehends illegal aliens responsible for roughly 80,000 DUIs, 76,000 drug offenses, and 50,000 assaults. There's an extensive network of human trafficking associated with illegal immigration threatening U.S. citizens and migrant families alike. Gangs such as MS-13 run amok because we refuse to enforce our laws. Now, our opponents, they'll try to counter this point by presenting their own data, claiming that illegal aliens on the whole commit fewer crime than citizens, but they're using flawed studies. The truth is, no one knows the full breadth of illegal alien crime because we don't even know how many of them are here. Uh, further, illegal alien, the illegal alien population is far less likely to report crime because they fear de deportation. And even when they do come forward, how are we supposed to get accurate numbers when sanctuary cities won't even report them? But at the end of the day, this is irrelevant. Every single crime committed by an illegal alien is a crime which should have never occurred in the first place. This debate is not about probabilities. It's about people like Etta Nugent, a mother of three and a grandmother of six, who in May of this year was repeatedly stabbed and killed by an illegal alien after forcing his way into her home. It's about Ariana Funes Diaz, a 14-year-old girl who in April of this year was brutally murdered by two MS-13 gang members, one armed with a bat and the other with a machete. Can our opponents seriously say with a straight face that illegal immigration poses no threat to people like them? Of course not. Illegal immigration also imposes an undue financial burden on our country. Now, our opponents will say that open borders will boost economic productivity, but they neglect one important reality. The United States has an advanced welfare system. Illegal aliens tend to be low-skilled workers who easily qualify for government assistance. Uh, we estimate that there are, at the very least, 11 million illegal aliens living within the United States. The average illegal alien household receives about $14,000 more in government benefits than it pays in taxes. The estimated net cost on our country for the lowest estimate of 11 million illegal aliens is $1.5 trillion. This is why Milton Friedman famously said, you cannot have open borders and a welfare state. So if you follow the libertarian logic of free movement of labor and open borders, then you are advocating for the expansion of welfare. Now, our opponents will likely say they get rid of welfare. Well, as a conservative, I find this appealing, but as a conservative, I don't live in a libertarian fantasy. I understand that there are <laughs> political realities and that welfare isn't going anywhere soon. Another common libertarian argument is build a wall around welfare. Don't give assistance to uh, non-citizens. Now, this is, yet again, politically unreasonable and morally cruel. Countries like the United Arab Emirates deny government assistance to immigrant workers. They've become an economic powerhouse in the Middle East off the back of migrant workers who now represent about 90% of their population, but their policy has created a de facto second-class citizenry. This system is detrimental to any free society, and conservatives will not allow it to happen in the United States. So now I have to ask my opponents, 
if you truly believe there is no threat associated with illegal immigration, if you want open borders, then how do you reconcile that with allowing criminals into the country? How many citizens and migrants alike need to be killed by MS-13 before you believe the government should do something? And further, if you, are you content with an expanded welfare state, or do you just want to deny immigrants uh, government assistance? Thank you. Well, now the libertarians have a chance to answer that and make their own opening statement. Few issues are as prone to rampant misinformation and outlandish claims as immigration policy. The human brain seems hardwired to create us versus them dichotomies. Our president and our conservative friends know this all too well. Let's be clear, undocumented immigrants do not pose a threat to the United States. To understand why, let's unpack the gross misconceptions surrounding the immigration debate. Our conservative friends correctly note that the vast majority of firearm crimes are committed by a small number of people. So I trust they will welcome the similar truth found in immigration crime statistics and conduct policy accordingly. It is often alleged that undocumented immigrants are exceptionally violent and pose a national security threat. That simply isn't true. Texas is the only state that tracks statistics for specific crimes by immigration status. And in Texas, which is hardly a state known for its soft treatment of undocumented immigrants, the homicide rate conviction rate for undocumented immigrants was 44% below that of native-born Americans in 2016. Nationwide, undocumented immigrants are 47% less likely to be incarcerated than natives. The academic literature has consistently found a negative correlation between crime and immigration. We have to be honest about the statistics. Fear-mongering is common. One study out of Switzerland found that the media was twice as likely to report on a crime committed by an immigrant as compared to a native citizen. Nevertheless, the annual chance of dying in an attack by a foreign-born terrorist, including 9-11, which accounts for almost 93% of all the terrorist deaths in this data set, is one in 3.8 million. The annual risk of dying in a car crash is one in 103. You would be a fool to suggest banning cars because they offer ben obvious benefits to society. The same logic applies to undocumented immigrants and immigrants in general. This brings us to our second misconception, that undocumented immigrants hurt our economy. The truth is just the opposite. The economic literature consistently finds that immigration has a positive impact on long-run economic growth and little to no effect on the real wages of native-born Americans. Most estimates find a positive impact overall on these native-born Americans. Importantly as well, undocumented immigrants are ineligible for federal means-tested welfare, so they hardly pose a threat to entitlement spending, which is already out of control. From 2002 to 2009, immigrants as a whole subsidized Medicare, making 14.7% of contributions, but only consuming 7.9% of expenditures. A third common misconception is that undocumented immigrants won't assimilate. If you compare today's immigrants to the immigrants who came over from Ireland and Italy, two groups that nobody would dare call a threat to American culture today, you will see that they assimilate at the same rates. Three generations in, Voting patterns and self-identification as an American are identical to non-recent immigrant families. One important fact should be emphasized. Assimilation doesn't necessarily mean adopting heritage foundation values. Yet if we truly want to protect our heritage, we must continue to allow for robust immigration. With the exception of the blatantly racist Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the very conception of an illegal immigrant did not really exist in our country until 1924. Almost everyone in this room is descended from someone who was fleeing persecution or seeking better opportunity for their families. Those same people wouldn't make it to America under current law. When you hear conservatives say, get to the back of the line, 
Remember that there is no line. Our current system lacks any sort of meaningful due process. We lock children in cages away from their parents. We demonize people trying to provide for their family. Our policies create criminals out of good people. Undocumented migrants are not a threat to the United States unless we make them one. A rebuttal from the conservative side. Okay. So we have to remember that we're having this conversation within the context of the status quo, a world where we have border patrol and agencies like ICE. Now, what do you think will happen if we just remove these security measures? Now, instead of... what happens, do you think we'll just remove these security measures? Contrary to what our opponents have said, car deaths are not the same thing as MS-13. We're gonna see an influx of crime on the border. Should we not even try to stop criminals from crossing into our country? Are our opponents content with MS-13 killing men, women, and children? How, how long do we have to wait before we do something? Moreover, I have yet to hear an answer about how we should handle the welfare system. And it doesn't only affect the federal government, it affects state governments as well. 26 states also give welfare benefits to non-citizens. If our country's unwilling to build a wall around welfare or around the border, what makes you think it's willing to build a wall around welfare? We, let's talk about numbers, let 1.75 million people legally into the country last year. If we allow more and think of, think of the additional people who come in, The government estimates that the current 11 million illegal alien population will cost us $1.5 trillion. What will happen to that if we just add in 10, 50, 100 million more people? I never thought I would allow. I never thought I would hear libertarians argue for the expansion of the welfare state. We have one minute for the libertarians to respond. So just to explain the welfare state thing, first, immigrants are not eligible for welfare. Second, if you look at a country like Sweden, we saw that influx of immigration led to people in the home state, so citizens, voting against welfare programs because they didn't want immigrants to get it. Is it xenophobic? Yes. Might it lead to decreasing the welfare system? Also, yes. Take your pick. Also, when we look at what happens in regard to policy-based decisions, we're not saying that there's no threat at hand from immigrants. What we're saying is that it's not worth it to say, oh, we're going to not allow anyone in, we're going to overextend what the threat actually is instead of addressing the data. We gave you clear data in our speech that undocumented immigrants are less of a threat than native-born Americans. So there's 50,000 homicides a year from undocumented immigrants. How how many are there from native-born Americans? A lot more. When we address the question at hand, it's important to remember that we don't identify all immigrants as MS-13 members, just as we don't identify all Christians as members of the Westboro Westboro Baptist Church. And a country with a closed border is a country with a closed future from an economic perspective. Thank you. Okay, third topic. The Libertarians will start this one. A larger defense budget will not enhance American national security. To understand the impact of a larger defense budget on American national security, we should look at what we're getting with the $716 billion requested by the Department of Defense in 2019. Unfortunately, nobody really knows where that money's going. Just this past November, the Pentagon failed an audit that cost the taxpayer more than $400 million. In a remarkable statement, Deputy Deputy Secretary Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan noted that, quote, We failed the audit, but we never expected to pass it. Anyone who believes in a strong national defense should find this deeply troubling. Equally troubling are the many areas of our defense budget that do nothing to enhance national security. You'd be hard-pressed to convince me that the Air Force spending $1,300 on coffee cups or $14,000 on 3D-printed toilet seats makes us safe. Over the course of four years, the Department of Defense spent $294 million 
the equivalent of nearly four U.S. Air Force F-35 Joint Strike Fighters on erectile dysfunction medication. No, seriously, you can look it up. In 2016, the Washington Post reported that the Pentagon buried an internal study on $125 billion in internal waste amid fears that Congress would use the findings as an excuse to slash the defense budget. If we were talking about the Department of Education failing an audit and calling it a success, conservatives would not be calling for increasing the department's funding. And we are spending more to get less. The deleterious impact of this bureaucracy is stark. As former Secretary of the Navy under Reagan, John Lehman notes, it now takes an average of 22 and a half years to deploy new weapons instead of the four years it took during the Cold War. Contrastingly, China and Russia are producing fifth-generation ships and fighters in four years. And why is this? It's because our bloated budget inhibits innovation. The world that we will fight in the future will increasingly depend on innovation. We will need more advanced technology. But a bigger, but a bigger budget will not improve our national security if we keep providing adverse incentives to keep projects slow and expensive. And incentives are important. And a larger budget would do nothing to streamline the Pentagon's bureaucracy. I have one final question that conservatives must answer to make an effective argument. If our current levels of spending aren't sufficient, what level is and why? How much more do we need to be taking from future generations to ensure adequate national security? I'll help them out. On May 15th, the Heritage Foundation stated that we needed a 3 to 5% growth in spending each year. Do the math. By the end of Trump's third term, that would be over a trillion dollars. And how much safer is that really going to make us? Our defense spending is almost equal to that of the next eight highest spending countries combined, and five of those countries are our allies. So would additional spending really make the average American any safer? Ultimately, one of the best things that America can do for its national security is to remain the world's economic powerhouse, and overfunding an elaborate bureaucracy is certainly not the way to do that. Former Joint Chief of Staff Chairman Admiral Michael Mullen famously remarked that the most significant threat to our national security is our debt. And we're not advocating to cut the budget. We're just, spending, we're just saying don't spend more on it. In all of this, there are important points that get missed. Is it beneficial to America's national security to engage in unconstitutional wars that kill civilians? Should we be spending American tax dollars on drones to kill civilians in the Middle East? Because we're not making friends when we bomb weddings in Pakistan. Conservatives must not only answer why we must increase our spending, but how spending money supporting places like Saudi Arabia makes American civilians safer. Our military has no grand strategy. Accordingly, we do not know what a successful cap on military spending looks like, but spending infinitely is certainly not the answer. Thank you. And now an opening statement from the Conservatives. George Washington once said, to be prepared for war is one of the most effective means of preserving peace. And his words ring true today. The United States is, plain and simple, a global power with global interests. Interests like protecting international free markets, the freedom of navigation on the high seas, and regional stability. We cannot protect these interests without a robust military capable of deterrence and without a defense budget to support it. Why must we project power across the globe? Well, what would the world look like if we shrink from our commitments? China is gradually taking over the South China Sea, jeopardizing our Asian allies and international trade prospects. Will China stop if the United States withdraws from the region? No, they would escalate their expansion. 
Iran is a major sponsor of terror and aspiring nuclear hegemon of the Middle East. Will Iran stop if the United States were to withdraw from the region? No, they would continue to sponsor terror and they would complete their nuclear program. North Korea is developing nuclear weapons and Russia has proven with its deceitful invasion of Crimea that it wishes to reclaim former Soviet influence. Will they suddenly stop if the United States withdraws from those regions? No, North Korea would seriously consider an invasion of South Korea and Russia would continue its aggression. United States military deterrence works. Our Navy has kept trade lanes open within the South China Sea and the Strait of Hormuz. Our ground forces stationed overseas have deterred invasions of countries like Taiwan, South Korea, and the Ukraine. Our air power has disrupted terrorist operations abroad. The United States must project power to maintain international interests, but we are currently handicapped by budget constraints. The defense budget of recent years is insufficient to meet these challenges. Our opponents, they've already said, what do you mean? The United States already spends so much more when compared to other countries. Now, this is true. However, aggregate expense is not an accurate measure of power. We have commitments across the world which our military must meet. Unlike other countries, we're not concentrated in one region. Take China for an example. The United States Navy on the whole may be larger than the Chinese Navy, but our Navy spans the globe, whereas China's concentrated in their backyard. The 7th Fleet, which is part of our Pacific Fleet, has about 50 ships when compared to China's 200. Are we able to effectively deter Chinese aggression within the South China Sea when we don't even have regional power parity? Of course not. We need a military capable of deterrence, suggesting otherwise is ignoring the reality we live in. Another common libertarian argument is that it would exacerbate the military-industrial complex, but the suggestion's incorrect. Yes, there is waste in the defense budget, which is why conservatives have proposed policies like rollover accounts for defense spending and base realignment and closure programs. But when Eisenhower warned the country of the military-industrial complex, he was warning us of an economy driven by defense spending. When Eisenhower was president, defense spending represented 9% of the economy and 52% of the federal budget. Today, it represents 3% of the economy and 16% of the federal budget. Conservatives want to spend our tax dollars effectively, but the mere potential for waste does not negate the underlying principle of a military deterrence driven by a robust military. So I have to ask our opponents, how do you seriously uh, plan to provide for a common defense? Do you really believe that a diminished budget and a diminished military will keep the United States safe? One of the reasons we can have this debate today is because of our robust military budget. Don't sit here and tell us that you don't like waste in the budget. What is your plan for the US? How much should we be spending on the military? Anyone can sit around and throw around criticisms and offer no solutions. Right, thank you. So now we have one minute for each rebuttal, starting with the libertarians. As I hear the threats raised by the conservatives, I'm reminded by a quote from Frederick the Great of Prussia, who said, he who defends everything defends nothing. Let's address some of these threats and why spending more money is not the best way to address them. Our conservative friends mentioned the threat that Iran poses to the region, and I'd like to remind them that the biggest threat would be nuclear proliferation. We had a deal that barred them from acquiring a nuclear weapon. They also talk about how Iran sponsors terrorism. Well, newsflash, we're aligned with the Saudis who are waging a war of aggression in Yemen and have also bid sponsors of terrorism in the region. Why are we destabilizing the region further by aligning with such a despotic regime? Additionally, they raise the threat of Russia, and I'd like to remind them that our NATO allies are more than capable of responding to the threat of Russia. Russia is an economy, Russia possesses an economy the size of Italy. Finally, I'm not understanding how all of these commitments around the globe make us safer. For example, our 18-year-long war in Afghanistan, that is not how we've improved readiness. If we, rather than dumping more money, perhaps we stop waging the war in Afghanistan to improve readiness. Thank you. 
Thank you, and now a conservative rebuttal. All right, despite what my opponents might say, this isn't like a game of risk where you can just pick up the pieces and restart. We're dealing with real-world threats here. The reality is that we're a global power with global interests. We need to play a world on, we need to play a role on the world stage because if we don't, we leave ourselves vulnerable. Do you really expect Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and jihadi groups to declare, well, now that the United States has uh, withdrawn its military presence, we can finally just live in peace and trade with them? No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I want U.S. ships in the South China Sea today so there aren't Chinese ships ships off the coast of Los Angeles tomorrow. I want U.S. planes to strike ISIS targets today so there aren't large-scale attacks on Western cities tomorrow. I want U.S. soldiers in Europe today so there isn't a Russian invasion of the Ukraine tomorrow. Now, what's our opponent's plan? Neglect, neglect the budget and hope people play nice. How do you plan to protect your coveted free markets when Iran begins to restrict the flow of oil through the Strait of Hormuz because the United States Navy isn't there to deter them? We cannot effectively maintain global interests without a robust military and a strong defense budget to support it. Thank you. Before we move on to our final topic, um, just to remind you, this, this hashtag uh, behind me, you can submit questions to it, which I will then pose to both sides during the Q&A section, which follows. So please, uh, please use that if you're so inclined. Final question, and the conservatives will go first on this one. Final topic, is the decline of marriage necessarily a bad thing? The decline of marriage is an existential threat to the United States in principle and in practice. Where 72% of Americans were married in 1960, only about half are married now. But it doesn't take statistics to understand that marriage is one of those things that gives life meaning. Since the dawn of civilization, some kind of marriage has existed. It's a support system, a solid foundation to build a life upon and to escape from loneliness and, in many cases, poverty. Not only that, it's the building block of society, the bedrock of civilization, and the vehicle by which we care for the next generations. It also turns out that marriage is America's greatest weapon against welfare dependence and child poverty. Because of the lack of economic stability and the psychological impact of single parenthood, the erosion of the institution of marriage is detrimental to children. According to the US Census, the poverty rate for single parents with children in the United States in 2009 was 37.1%, while the rate for married couples with children was 6.8%. Children with only one parent are less likely to finish school more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, or more, and more likely to commit violent crimes. Over half of incarcerated youths are from single-parent homes. And we must ask ourselves, is this the future we want for our children? Of course not. Children need parents. Where else do the libertarians expect to get their generation of innovators and scientists without parents to guide them? The fact is, marriage is the best model for raising leaders and good citizens. How can we justify denying children the tried and true effective environment for upbringing? I ask our opponents, why are you so ex eager to experiment with children's livelihood? Not to mention, marital decline burdens society through a larger welfare state. Instead of finding a spouse, many people today are marrying the American taxpayer. The overwhelming majority of benefits to families with children goes to single parent households, as a result, over-reliance on government assistance has deprived children of the love and security they would have received from two parents. 
Michael Brendan Doherty argued that it was the culture of personal fulfillment and convenience that replaced tra traditional meaning and led to the dissolution of his parents' marriage and eventually led to his own identity crisis. Doherty's story showed that marriage is not just a lifestyle choice or a contract for a tax break. Children depend on it. And there's something we can do right now to save the institution of marriage. Conservatives understand how to balance limited government and the crisis of marriage. Our opponents will say that we want to micromanage marriage, but it's just the opposite. We don't want welfare to take the place of the family breadwinner. We don't want people married to the government. We want people married to each other. A good step in the right direction is removing the penalties against marriage inherent in the welfare system and ending the subsidizing and incentivizing of single parenthood. Given all this evidence, we can't give up on marriage. We simply can't afford to. Thank you. Now an opening statement from the Libertarians. There's a rich and vibrant history of conservatives lamenting the decline of marriage in our country. At various points in our nation's history, conservatives have stated that the right for women to own property, women's suffrage, interracial marriage, and same-sex marriage would all undermine the institution. Alas, here we are, and the institution of marriage has survived Obergefell v. Hodges. Nevertheless, conservatives, who are always quick to note their support for limited government, are as steadfast as ever in their support for government interference in marriage. And the essential question when considering whether the decline of marriage is necessarily a bad thing is what the government should do about it. Let's examine conservative policy prescriptions. And as we do so, keep another question in mind. Which past era of marriage would conservatives wish to return us to? Conservatives often implicate the legalization of same-sex marriage as a key factor driving the decline of marriage. Yet why should two adults not have the liberty to marry and raise a child together? There is nothing ethical about preventing such a marriage, and doing so actually harms the future of our country. The academic literature has consistently found that children raised by same-sex parents fare just as well as children raised in traditional marriages when the necessary confounders are controlled for. I would love for conservatives to lecture Kenneth Fareed, an NBA player who was raised in New Jersey by two mothers, on how a father is required to instill masculinity in a child. Another policy proposal favored by some conservatives to address the alleged decline of marriage is limiting no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce allows a spouse to terminate a marriage without showing fault by the other party. Conservatives argue that no-fault divorce has compromised the institution of marriage. Some have proposed ending no-fault divorce for married couples with children. Yet such a repeal would not only be harmful to mothers, but also to the very children it would aim to protect. Marriages that should be terminated would endure, and the social science literature has shown that parents born to, uh, children born to high-conflict marriages are actually worse off than those born to single parents. Although marriage may be preferable to single parenthood on average, only one blissfully divorced from reality can argue that it is better for parents to remain together in a conflict-ridden household than separate. And under a repeal of no-fault divorce, mothers would invariably be hurt. Research by the economists Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers found that states that introduced unilateral divorce saw female suicide decrease by 8 to 16%, domestic violence decrease by roughly 30%, and spousal murder decrease by 10%. Make no mistake about it, the repeal of no-fault divorce laws that many conservatives favor will lead to the deaths of mothers. Such a proposal is a textbook case of the treatment being worse than the cure. Other proposals, such as strong tax incentives, are equally foolhardy. For one, they devalue the institution that conservatives cherish. Consider the marginal marriages created by such incentives. 
Would parents link together only by financial incentives really provide a healthy environment for their children? Besides, a cursory glance at history, including the failed attempts by the Soviet Union to regulate religion, illustrates why governments have no business interfering with such core social values, such as one's choice of partner or religion. Conservatives would greatly benefit from absorbing this wisdom. It is not the role of government to regulate marital choices. That is instead the domain of private individuals and associations, including churches that favor traditional marriages. The state should play no role in distorting one of the most fundamental choices of any individual, the choice of partner. It's simply wrong for the state to choose your partner for you. Thank you. First rebuttal. Well, our opponents mentioned alternatives to traditional marriage. The fact is that the arrangement of traditional marriage is the best known environment for raising children by every metric. Biologically and psychologically speaking, children don't need parenting. They need mothering and fathering. And our opponents claim that these other arrangements for raising children are just as, just as not, not, not probably superior, but I find that interesting because the logical extension of libertarianism as exhibited by Murray Rothbard, co-founder of Cato, is that parents shouldn't even be obliged or coerced into feeding their own children, let alone raising them. So at that point, I think the familial structure is probably irrelevant to libertarians, but it's not to us. And the libertarian rebuttal? So for those of you who didn't chime in last year, we publicly disavowed Murray Rothbard last year and let us do it again. He has horrible ideas. And also, I would like to remind you throughout, thank you, that think of the children is not actually an argument. When we look at the decline of marriage, we need to look at why it's happening. And that's because people are getting married later in life because they think it's an important decision that sh should have some thought behind it, and that divorce rates are going down. So while divorce rates peaked in the 1980s, we're seeing them lower now, which is still higher than the 60s, because there was no fault, there was no no-fault divorce then, which is when you saw all of the bad side effects that Will told you in his opening statement. <coughs> fundamentally, this is an argument about choice. Marriage today is about love. It's a fundamentally different institution. It's probably good for children. They've given you great data. Let's believe them. But at its core, when we look at what the government's role in marriage should be, it shouldn't be involved at all. Because you know what's best for you, you know what's best for your partner, and yes, you should feed your children together. Thank you. Well, we're now at the uh, Q&A section, and um, I'm going to pose the first question to the libertarians, either of you. Uh, I have two, two minutes for this one. Um, you said in the segment on drugs, both that uh, liberalizing drug laws would help in that it would lead to fewer people with problems, fewer addicts. But you, there was also a moral case made for doing that, not locking people in cages for putting things into their body. Let's assume that we don't see the response that you've proposed and we liberalize the drug laws and we do see all sorts of horrors. Where does that put that moral case? I love morals, they're great. Um, so it would put us in a slightly difficult situation. I concede to the conservatives that there are some cases where drugs can destroy agency, and agency is super important. But at its core, if we look at the data, not on whether people get addicted, but on what's the most effective way to get them not addicted, we have seen really good success in regard to AA and NA. There are systems put in place that are not run by the government that help us determine what is the best solution for combating addiction? And addiction is something really difficult. Like, there, no one's disputing that. 
But when we look at what the policy prescription should be, it's important to remember that ethical and effective policy goes hand in hand. We look at important things, and we're saying, what's the best way for the government, an institution with a legitimate use of force on you, it has a monopoly on it, um, and we say, what happens if we put the government in charge of something? So what would the government realistically do to addicts? Not sure. It would probably involve some penalty. And with something like addiction, when your choice is taken away, it might be that your first cigarette was something that you chose, but your second or third cigarette probably wasn't. And if the government said that they were going to penalize addiction, then that's a bad policy because you're now penalizing people for something outside of their control. So the response with addiction is always going to be something involving rehabilitation. It's always going to be something that engages communities because as you look at the data about what helps addiction, it helps people to be involved with communities. And no matter what way you try to spend things, the government is not a community. Thank you. And a related question for the conservatives. Given what you've said about uh, the effects of drugs, how strong is the case for banning alcohol or cigarettes? Cigarettes are addictive. Um, and uh, why should we ban marijuana but not alcohol, um, given that there is some evidence to suggest one causes many more problems than the other? So I know libertarians often cite marijuana as like their winner case, and I have to concede that it's a little bit more compelling because it's a leaf. I get it. Uh, however, it does shrink the size of your brain. That's important to note. But the thing about alcohol is that the FDR administration deemed it Essentially, on a cost-benefit analysis, the cost of prohibition, capital prohibition, exceeded the benefits of prohibition because we were fighting a war. And as I mentioned earlier, it was an established convention in American culture to casually drink alcohol. That is not the case, unfortunately, with black tar heroin or meth. And ultimately, you could argue, of course, that alcohol has imposed greater societal harm. If you take the metrics, you look at traffic fatalities, you look at hospitalizations, it, it by far takes the cake there. But this is about aggregate harm. If you add hard drugs into that equation, you legalize those two, what will the aggregate harm be? We acknowledge that al alcohol imposes great harm on society. But what else will happen if we also legalize meth and heroin and cocaine Etc. All right, thank you. And this is a question for both the libertarians and the conservatives. Should social media companies be permitted to sell their users' data? Libertarians first. Yes, they, they should be. That is a, a market op operation if users consent. That's the key. Yeah, to just clarify that one again, social media companies are private companies. The government shouldn't tell them what they can and can't do with their market. Um, and even though it makes us sound icky, like feel icky when it happens, if you read the terms and conditions, which I highly recommend that you do, you did agree to it. So, and there are market forces that prohibit the most egregious uses of data. People push back to those against those egregious uses of data. Conservatives, we actually agree, or I actually agree with the libertarians. I mean, these are private companies that are allowed to do, uh, you know, what they will with. Uh, is if people contract away information, then they're allowed to uh, sell it and increase ad revenue and better uh, targeted ads that way. Uh, and I think it's just a general rule of thumb. Whatever you put online is going to stay online. Uh, so so long, uh, companies right now, they're not poaching uh, data that they're not, they're, not, they're not poaching data that's unreasonable. It's stuff that we put on there, and we should have the expectation that's going to stay there. Okay, and a question for the conservatives. 
What would you say is the most serious social problem that the state is incapable of successfully addressing? It's hmm. a very good question. <laughs> social problem. You can blame the hashtag, not me. I... <laughs> I honestly would say the decline of marriage. Like, whether we like it or not, no nation is meant to endure forever. And this is a civilizational, this is, a civil, this is an existential threat to our civilization and the United States at large. Uh, marriage rates are really, really low. And uh, like I talk to my parents, I talk to their parents, and it's, it's just a situation that we haven't seen before. And we have to ask ourselves, why is there this culture, why is this culture of convenience and self-fulfillment so pervasive? And should we reassess that looking forward? Okay, and a question for the libertarians. What non-governmental institutions does libertarianism need to exist for libertarianism to thrive? A lot of libertarians obviously say, well, we don't want the government involved in this area. Is it a free-floating ideology, or do you need a set of preconditions? If so, what are they? So there's lots of different types of libertarianism. If you ask a virtue libertarian, they would probably say the church, um, because that's what those people happen to have. Like, the, the ideas just happen to be in accordance with your average church. Um, if you ask um, a libertarian that's probably more of a classical liberal, they might say some sort of education system. It might not look like our current education system, but it might be some place where you go and maybe, maybe it's a charter school, maybe it's a private school. Um, it's not an easy question to ask, like to answer directly, because there is a lot of diversity within the libertarian movement about what sorts of institutions are good, which ones should we keep around, and which ones should we support. Okay, and then a question for both sides, uh, two minutes each if you need it. Um, should the government regulate pornography, conservatives first? <laughs> All right, the government should most definitely ensure that adult pornography is only reserved to audiences that are ages 18 and plus, but pornography such as like child pornography, yes, the government should clearly be forbidding that from entering the marketplace because we, it would be corrupting minors and you have people who are unable to give consent. Uh, so yes, the government does have a role in ensuring that that type of pornography does not enter the marketplace. Libertarians? So we'll concede on child porn. It causes harm to children. That's bad. Um, when you look at the larger question about pornography. It's really complicated. So if you want a good case study, you should look at the United Kingdom and see what they're doing with their porn laws. In 2014, there was something called a face-sitting protests outside of Parliament near Christmas time because the UK used a bad piece of legislation from the 1970s to ban um, a lot of different sexual acts one of them was face-sitting, hence the reason why it was called the face-sitting protest, because you had members of the porn community come out and enact face-sitting in order to illustrate that it wasn't functionally different from other pornographic acts that were allowed on camera. Um, so when it comes to whether the government should regulate pornography, I would say, in theory, you might have reasons why the government should. If in terms of something like revenge porn, where it's a contract violation, it absolutely harms privacy, it's an abhorrent moral thing. But when you look at the practice of pornography overall and like mostly tube sites, it becomes really difficult because there's, first of all, a lot of data, and the government's not super equipped to handle that. And the second reason is that when you look at what banning porn does, it's normally not an overall ban. 
Normally, it bans specific types of pornography that end up adversely affecting um, minority groups. So certain sexual acts on women are not allowed. Certain sexual acts on men are allowed. And that sort of inequity in the law is just something that shouldn't happen, frankly. And so the, external, the externalities involved with banning porn are really complicated, and any government should really think through their position carefully before they attempt such a ban. This is probably the first debate in the history of the United States <laughs> at which we've mentioned both Milton Friedman and face-sitting within <laughs> 10 minutes of one another. I... <laughs> okay, another question for the libertarians. What is the proper role of America's military in the world? Leave waste aside, what should we be doing? I think the best way to look at it is the difference between isolationism and... Uh, Inter non -isolation, uh, being isolationist and being interventionist, uh, pardon me. Um, and the key is to provide for the national defense and um, to do whatever it takes to provide for the national defense and respond to threats appropriately. And a question for the conservatives. You were accused earlier of wanting to put people in cages more than is necessary. Is mass incarceration a problem in America? And if it is, what's the primary solution you'd propose? So... The reference about putting children in cages, I'd like to point out at the border, I hope this is common knowledge by now, but the reason why that's happening, first of all, was happening during the last administration, is because of a loophole in our, in our laws, in our border security laws, I think it was called Flores Amendment. Uh, what, what that did is essentially mandated that children be separated from their parents uh, at the border, and as a result, they, they are separated from their, from their parents at the border and put into separate detainment facilities. So solution there is if we close the loopholes, we disincentivize migrants from making that treacherous journey through Central America, through Mexico, buying children along the way because they know it helps and improves their case for either to claim asylum or to gain admittance through other, through other let's, claims. Let's leave immigration aside for a minute, just in general. Do we have too many people in prison? Do we have too many laws? And if we do, what should we do about it? I mean, the fact is that crime deserves incarceration to, 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 on, along the spectrum. It depends on what the crime is. I don't believe in mandatory minimum sentences, personally. But in terms of greater crimes, more severe crimes, what, what is the alternative to incarceration? Because you committed a crime, punishment is due, and that, that is the legitimate recourse. Okay, question for both. We'll start with the conservatives. Uh, should the U.S. support the organization of NATO? Uh, the United States most definitely support NATO because it's one of the greatest deterring, uh, deter deterring forces uh, of the latter half of the 20th century into the 21st century. Uh, so through NATO, we've been able to deter not only the Soviet Union, but Russian aggression. Uh, and, it's, and I know there are concerns today about certain NATO countries not meeting uh, their military expenditures, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't support the institution or that we should withdraw our support from it uh, and, or that we should with, uh, diminish our military spending as a result. Uh, NATO is a force for good, and we should, and it's a, a corner piece of U.S. foreign policy, and we should absolutely support it. Libertarian, should we support NATO? I agree with our conservative friends that NATO has had an important deterrent role, particularly in the 20th century with the Soviet Union, and continues to do so with Russia. Um, where we might have a point of disagreement is 
over this subsidization where we are subsidizing much of the defense of European countries when they are more than capable of defending for themselves. We also might disagree on what NATO should be used for. For example, the intervention in Libya in 2011, that has essentially created a failed state in Libya and propagated terrorism, and that was a NATO operation. So we might have points of disagreement there as well. Okay, and the uh, final question is, uh, is a tough one, I think, but an important one, especially given our present debate. Um, this is for both sides. Libertarians can go first. Should the United States government via American taxpayers pay reparations to the descendants of slaves? There's no easy answer to this. And I think you're not going to get a great one from either of us, frankly. Um, this country was built on the back of slaves. There's no way around that. The way that we have historically treated people of color in this country is awful. And there is probably something that we morally need to do about it. Um, when you look at the issue of reparations, it, it breaks down to how do you provide reparations in a way that addresses all facets of this very complicated issue. And there's not a good way to do that. Um, there have been certain things proposed in regard to giving all descendants of slaves a block grant. Um, if you want to know why this might be a good idea, um, it's really funny. So Robert Nozick probably supports reparations in this way when he talks about stolen property. So if you want to read Anarchy, State, and Utopia and talk about his concept of like time slice history versus everything and like the way that um, property gets exchanged rightfully, he might give you an answer to support that. Um, there are other ways where you talk about supporting institutions. And... I have not given a lot of thought on what my personal opinions on this issue is. There's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of really good points raised on all different sides. And I think one thing that I can say with certainty is that our country really needs to think about the way that we treat all members of everyone who lives inside of its borders, kind of regardless of their circumstance, because we're all stuck here together, and we can definitely treat people better. Thank you. Conservatives. And so first off, slavery, obviously condemned it was a terrible institution, and it definitely let, uh, left many people disadvantaged. Now, at the same time, unfortunately, it is not the role of the government to fix every single historical injustice. Uh, a better way, I think, to address uh, the issue is to try to get communities who are affected uh, off a long cycle of government dependence. And that I think one of the greatest reasons as to why particularly the African-American community has had difficulty progressing past slavery is because they have become reliant upon the government based off of old democratic policies from the Jim Crow South. So I think that reforming the welfare state and reforming how we address uh, these communities uh, is a far better solution than just redistributing wealth from a generation who did nothing to, uh, to inflict slavery upon people. All right, thank you. Well, we're now in the final portion uh, of this, evening, this evening's debate. The conclusions. We're going to start with a four-minute conclusion from the Libertarians. And we're going to have a four-minute conclusion from the Conservatives. Oh, other way around? The other way around. So throughout this debate, we've demonstrated that we should all be conservatives because we should ultimately <laughs> want to be more like Friedrich Hayek and less like John Maynard Keynes. Now, the libertarian ideology, much like Keynesian economics, it's focused on the short term. 
demands individual autonomy in the present. And now this is certainly seductive. But the conservative, like Friedrich Hayek, thinks in the long run. Hayek does not look, he looks to the future because he does not subscribe to the Keynesian position that in the long run we're all dead. He understood that a narrow view of the present yields disastrous results in the future. Same is true for our politics. Our opponents told you that drug addiction will liberate you, but we know that drug addiction will enslave you. Addiction is intensely felt by those struggling with it and by society at large. These harmful substances have laid waste to entire regions of this country. Drug legalization would be a surrender, not a victory for liberty, because drugs condemn not only you, but your children and your community and your posterity to serfdom. Our opponents, they told you that illegal immigration poses no threat to the United States, but we know that it undermines our basic sovereignty. Illegal immigration presents a real threat to citizens and migrants alike, and open borders will burden us with an ever-growing welfare state. If we do not secure the border, then future Americans cannot call themselves a sovereign nation anymore. Our opponents told you that our presence on the world stage creates chaos, but the world is safer through American leadership. Military dependence upholds, or military deterrence upholds international norms, protects free markets, and ensures the ultimate security of the nation. Only through a strong defense budget can we maintain a military capable of meeting today's challenges. Without military strength, we will leave our children at the mercy of foreign powers. Our opponents told you that the decline of marriage should be no cause for alarm, but we know that it will rip the building block of society right, right from under us. The gradual dismantlement of marriage inhibits the prosperity of children and denies them a stable upbringing. Single parenthood, encouraged and incentivized by the welfare state, levies a de facto tax and handicap on our children. We should promote the family unit through reforming the welfare system. If not, future generations will be helpless against an unraveling social fabric and a deteriorating civilization. Libertarians and their dogmatic devotion to absolute autonomy is destructive and leads to a future where the torch of liberty will be snuffed out. Conservatives understand that absolute autonomy does not yield absolute good, and it can, in fact, harm the ultimate preservation of liberty. Conservatives, in tradition with the founding, believe government ultimately exists to serve society and country, but is restrained and guided by a respect for fundamental liberties. We are not born into this world as individuals. Rather, we're born into something greater than ourselves, our families, local communities, and country. Conservatives want to fight for the civil society so that our children will be able to exercise liberty and pursue happiness. If we blindly follow absolute autonomy today, then we do so at the expense of our civil society tomorrow. So I implore my libertarian colleagues to think more like Friedrich Hayek. Look in the long run and you'll see that a free society needs a civil society. The namesake of this auditorium understood that Western civilization depends on its traditional and moral practices. In order to preserve our fundamental liberties, we must uphold civil society, family, community, and country. Therefore, only conservatism can guarantee that the torch of liberty will continue to burn brightly for generations to come. Thank you. This is a debate about political philosophy. And above all else, the best political philosophies are consistent in their application of moral principles. So what principles do conservatives stand for? Family values and preserving institutions. But what does it look like to apply those values? Because as we've seen throughout this debate, 
Not all families are considered good enough for conservatives, and all, there's obviously not going to be a bright line for where we need to do away with some institutions. You have heard how conservatives have cried wolf on the destruction of marriage when women got the right to vote, just as they do now. You have heard how conservatives criticize certain intoxicants while giving alcohol an exception because somehow it makes more economic sense. You have heard conservatives say that the Department of Defense is above reproach when it comes to government waste in regard to incentives. Now you could look at me and say, Sam, inconsistency by itself isn't a problem. The real world needs real solutions, and sometimes these real solutions require compromise. And that's a fair point. But as we've shown you, these conservative inconsistencies breed tangible harms. The libertarian position remains consistent. Policies should be founded on choice and prioritize small government accordingly. We use data, and we don't continually strawman our conservative friends. Both the libertarian world and the conservative world will have flaws. The main difference is that the libertarian world would give you a choice to be a conservative. The conservative world would deny libertarians. In the libertarian world, you can still preserve family values and religious institutions. The conservative world imposes conservative beliefs on its citizens and uses state-sanctioned force when individuals peacefully dissent. And here's why. At its core, libertarianism breaks down into two key features, a strong belief in the importance of equal freedom and a skepticism surrounding government institutions. Equal freedom is the idea that I am free to do whatever I wish as long as I do not violate the freedom of other individuals. A skepticism surrounding government institutions is just that, a skepticism. There are cases where the government can ethically effectively engage in policies to preserve freedom. However, our modern government does so, so much more than that, and in doing so, often infringes on equal freedom. Throughout this debate, conservatives have missed the point. They've declared us isolationists and rigid individualists who want to see communities fall and advocate for policies that spell an existential threat to America. That's not what libertarianism is. Libertarianism empowers individuals and communities to decide what choices they ought to pursue. Most simply, our legal system is founded on the idea that people can be held accountable for their actions, that people can choose to do the right thing. Accordingly, it does make sense to prioritize freedom in establishing a political philosophy but freedom is more than this pragmatic value. Whatever your conception of the good is, whether it be supporting your church or even something as ridiculous as making it your goal in life to walk an alligator across I-95 on a Tuesday, it's important that people freely choose to pursue it. Interest in being a moral agent is by far the most important part of being a good person. We do not want people to do the right thing because someone told them to. You would find it incredibly concerning if the only reason I didn't torture people was because it was against the law or someone told me that I shouldn't, because torture is wrong. People should do the right thing because they want to be a good person who does good things. And when you place all of your trust in institutions, you diminish the standing of personal responsibility. Out of all of the political philosophies, libertarianism is the only one that fully prioritizes moral choices and communities. And that's why you should believe in libertarianism as a political philosophy.
I should say, as a new Floridian, I just want a day in which I don't have to take an alligator across I-95 in the afternoon. Exactly. <laughs> Let's see. Well, right to the end. <laughs> right, well, if we could have a, a round of applause for both sides of the debate. <laughs>